audio conversation with Mary Rodwell, recorded Wednesday, October 1st, 2014. For anyone who has not heard of Mary, she has been researching the UFO abduction experiences in Australia mostly, I think for the last, must be 20 years or so now. She uh, is originally from England. She now lives in Australia. She runs an outfit called ACERN, which stands for Australian Close Encounter Research Network. She also does past life hypnotherapy sessions. We do not touch on that at all during this talk. Uh, and she, she began her practice as a midwife and as a family therapist, as a family counselor, which, is, which to me is very interesting because there's a side of Mary, having met her, that is um, that's really tough. And I can see her not accepting uh, mamby-pamby answers from people who she is working with. I uh, would suspect she would be very serious and want to go to the deepest questions and the deepest part of the problems in a very direct way. Uh, and, and all of this, I think, would work to her advantage doing the abduction research and to the advantage of the people who are her clients, the people who are working with her, the people with the first-hand experiences. She falls uh, well on the outside of the nuts and bolts crowd. She is very comfortable digging into the more consciousness and the more multidimensional aspects of this, uh, what I consider an elusive mystery. And it was for those reasons that I was very eager to talk to her. Now, I read Mary's book, Awakening. I probably read it around 2007. Uh, it came out in 2002. It was re-released in 2010 with, I think, some uh, new information in that. And then later I met her at a, at a conference, I think in 2010, at Laughlin. And she was, she gave a talk and she was also hosting the experiencer support groups that at that time took place in the evening. And it was interesting having seen other folks, folks like Barbara Lamb, and Leo Sprinkle running these things, she ran it in a way that was very serious. She was all about doing the hard work. Um, you know, I've seen other people run these things, and they're just kind of a little coffee clutch in a way where everyone chit-chats and shares some of their stuff. But she had a different vibe entirely. She was, she was, she was out to solve this thing, and, and she very much ran it in a way that was serious. So having met Mary and having seen her in action in the support group, as well as reading her book, I was very eager to do an audio interview with her. And I had been going back and forth a little bit over, maybe over a year now, where I would send a little note in and say, I would like to do an audio interview. And then she would say yes. And then we would never quite find the time. And uh, it was a couple nights ago, I kind of jotted off a note and I said, listen, I would love to do an audio interview. And she got right back to me and said, okay, when do you want to do it? And I was like, as soon as possible, I'm ready. And she said, let's do it tomorrow morning. So that night I watched a documentary, which is on YouTube. It's linked here in the show notes. It's called My Mom Talks to Aliens. Not a perfect documentary, but I enjoyed it. I kind of dug the vibe of it and what they were trying to do with it. And it was the following day that I did this interview. I feel like I usually have a pretty good amount of time to prep. And I didn't feel like I had all that much time. And so I feel bad about one thing. I feel like I came out of the corner of the boxing ring in a way. And my very first question was about Bud Hopkins, who I knew she had butted heads with. And I worry 
I caught her a little off guard, but she handled it very well, and, and we rolled right on into, into other stuff and, and stuff that was more important to me personally. Uh, our conversation together lasts about an hour and 20 minutes long. Please enjoy. Mary, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. You're most welcome, Mike. I have spoken a lot about my own uh, exploration on this program, and I worked uh, for a while right near the end of Bud Hopkins' life, and that would have been uh, 2007 and 2008. I worked with him in person, and then I did a handful of phone calls with him uh, after that. And you have an interesting story about meeting Bud Hopkins that tells a little bit about both you and about Bud, and, and I guess the way you approach this subject. Um, are you referring to the time we had lunch together in Sydney? Is this the... I the, think um, so, yes. The, I think that's right, yeah. I think it's just different perspectives in terms of researchers. And for me, one of the things that I found a bit confronting with that perspective or Bert's perspective, if you like, was that he always felt that all these interactions were orchestrated um, by less than loving entities and um, negative entities, and that there, if there was any kind of spiritual growth or anything positive, the person was in fact, if you like, programmed to to believe that. And I had a problem with that from my perspective, working with individuals. The reason that I have a problem with that is that. For me, what resonated with the individual made a lot more sense than me trying to interpret their experiences. A way that I would ask someone in terms of whether or not they felt a victim or whether or not they felt in some way they were more of a participant. In hypnosis, I feel that you do get um, the subconscious offering you a real... um, new perspective on your experiences in, in a way that I think is not um, monitored by the conscious mind. In other words, as Dr. John Mack always believed, that hypnosis gave you a far more um, open information, if you like, uh, um, because the subconscious doesn't in any way com- compromise or edit the information that you're talking about because the conscious mind says, oh, well, that can't be real, therefore that um, I'm not going to say that, whereas the subconscious doesn't know um, what to edit or not to edit. And so it comes out with what I think is from a higher perspective of someone's knowing. And so I would ask the question, for example, have you on any level consented to this experience? And some of my clients, in fact, a majority of them may say that they would have consented as a soul, as someone before they incarnated here. And so when um, Bud and I were speaking about the whole thing to do with, you know, um, the positives um, or the negatives of of beings and and interpreting someone's experience, I said to Bud in a very open question, I said, but what about the people that believe that they consented before they came here as a soul? if you like, um, because some of my clients have actually said that that's when they uh, agreed to, to um, if you like, participate in a certain program, even though it was confronting. And that was when Bud basically shut down and decided the lunch was over. He didn't even 
want to discuss it. And that was a, a concern for me because, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And the line is that if someone is resonating to that information and articulating it from that subconscious part of themselves, we should at least look at that. And, and you know, at the end of the day, the, the person involved may choose to believe that or not believe that, but that's really up to them. It's not for us to say whether that's accurate or not accurate or real or not real because it's not our experience, it's, it's theirs. And I think the problem that I have with interpretations when we're interpreting for other people, that we're interpreting from our own limited perspective, and I don't think that that's accurate. I think the person themselves has to make up their own mind what makes sense to them or doesn't make sense. So I'm, if you like, going into a fairly, it might seem a long-winded way of saying this, it was a very different approach that I had in terms of working with my uh, with with clients than that than Bud did because I felt Bud always had a a mandate, if you like, a a particular perspective, and it didn't seem that anything was ever going to change that particular perspective, which to me is a is a concern or was a concern at the time. Now this is interesting because I I knew Bud. I felt like pretty well and at the time that I met him he was um, his health was failing and um, so I met a very weak man you know physically though I will say when the subject of you know working on the UFO stuff you know my experiences he really uh, shined and you know so my my experiences with him were very likable and and but I, I sense exactly what you're saying uh, like I can, I, from where I'm sitting, I can see both sides of that, you know. And I also feel that Bud was doing some very bold things as far as actually doing this work at all and coming forward. So Bud took this to a certain level, and now you know the torch has been passed, and and there needs to be, you know, to be to go deeper. Did you ever work with um or know uh, John Mack? I never worked with him, but I followed his work very closely, and I did meet him a few. Um, months before his his um, his passing, you know, when he got hit by a lorry in London, um, I had great respect for him because here we have, you know, a professor of psychiatry that had looked into all the psychological testing of all those that he put in his first and second book, which you know uh, was abduction, um, human encounters with um, uh, uh, aliens, and also the second one, passport to the cosmos. My concern, I mean, I agree with you, Bud was an extremely charming and likable individual. And I think certainly lots, uh, a lot of his uh, groundbreaking work was very fascinating and very helpful in terms of, it, you know, giving this a reality to people and, and helping people to understand it was a reality. But let's make no mistake here, there is a big difference between a researcher doing hypnosis and a therapist doing hypnosis and I make a big distinction in my book between who do you go to for help and if you go to researcher you're going to get um, someone looking and seeking facts that they can corroborate in some way if they take you into the scenario they're going to help you look at the scene itself not necessarily the meaning behind the scene which a therapist will do so you know, in my book, when I say, what is the difference? You have to ask yourself, what is it that you want in terms of interpreting your experience? Do you want someone to give you, you know, to help you with the facts of what you're seeing? Do you want to actually understand it from a deeper level? 
And those that do hypnosis, and there are a lot of researchers out there that will do that know how to do hypnosis. That's not a problem. It's it's easy enough to learn the techniques. But to help somebody work through an experience from a deeper level requires someone who has had training in some form of uh, counseling or psychology, etc. Because you want not just only to see what the scene is. For example, if you see someone, if you see yourself on a table having certain procedures done, it's not enough just to see that scene. You actually need to know why that procedure is being done. And that is not something necessarily those that are looking at it from the perspective of exploring the experience will do. They will only stop at a certain point. Whereas in a therapeutic um, way of looking at this, you're looking at the meaning or the understanding from the subconscious, superconscious as well, which actually takes it to another level. Whether or not it's verifiable in terms of your conscious mind is it is is really not the point. What's it, the point is, is that person has a resonance to the information that helps them understand that experience from, from their perspective. And that is the difference between going to a researcher that's doing hypnosis and a therapist. <clears throat> yes, and obviously um, uh, John Mack would certainly fall more into the therapeutic role. And... Uh, now, now, so here, let me just tell a quick story about Bud. Um, I was going to go for a hypnosis session. I had attempted hypnosis once before with Bud in 2007. I went back to New York in 2008, partly to visit him and to go through a second hypnosis session. I'll have to say nothing much came up in the first one. And then when I knocked on his door and he opened the door, he was the only one there in his apartment, um, he did not look well. He was He seemed very weak and very frail. And he said, Mike, I don't have enough energy to go through hypnosis. Let's just sit and talk for a while. I was actually quite relieved because I was very nervous about going through the hypnosis process. So I sat and talked with him for about three hours. And I was pretty strong about my own experiences and my own opinions. I didn't feel like he was swaying me in any way. And there was a lot of things that um, fall into the more, you know, kind of, I don't want to say love and light aspect of things. But... I was very much being plagued with synchronicities at that point in my life. Very, very powerful synchronicities. And I asked him about that, and he would say, oh, no, no, don't you worry about those synchronicities. Don't you dwell on those. And then he would tell a story about synchronicities, very, very powerful ones. And I would say, you know, but I'm also having these psychic experiences. He'd like, oh, no, don't you dwell on those psychic experiences. And then he would tell about some psychic experiences that, that his the people he had worked with had had. And I thought it was really kind of wise. It felt like he respected me. Now, now, at the end of the session, as I was walking out, now I live on the western side of the United States, and, and Bud is right there on the east coast, and uh, the last time I saw him, he gave me a big hug, and just as I was walking out the door, he kind of looked at me and he said, you live close to Leo, don't you? And he met Leo Sprinkle, and I, and I said, yeah, I live fairly close by western standards to Leo, and and he kind of said, you know, Leo would be a good fit for you. I think you and Leo would, would work well together. And and Leo, I, you must know Leo Sprinkle, obviously. Yes. So now Leo would be would fall into the therapist side of things. He would also fall into mm-hmm. someone who is, who is uh, far outside mm-hmm. Bud's comfort zone. So I, I took that as I took that as very I felt very respected by Bud by by saying that mm-hmm. to me. You know, the knowing that I was grounded enough in in his eyes. Mm-hmm to really um, 
you know, how to say it, I guess into the deeper waters than, than Bud may have been comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. going into. So, so I see both sides of it. I saw in Bud, but actually I felt very, um, I guess I've said this, you know, very, he felt like I was being respected. The fact that he, he, um, thought that I would be a good fit for, for Leo. And I do think I would be a good fit for Leo. And I've, I've done a little bit of work with mm-hmm. him, but, um, uh, now I made some notes here and, and I'm at the point now. So you said researcher versus therapist. Now, I'm at the point now where I'm sort of seeing these issues, especially my own issues, where I would almost say researcher versus shaman. And and when I say that, I mean the researcher mm-hmm. is confined by, oh, let's say our three-dimensional reality. And the shaman, in that shaman is a very open-ended term, is less confined by that mm-hmm. reality and more open to alternate realms. And do, mm-hmm. do you do you get what I'm saying there? As far as the the like, I often wonder like, who do you call after you've had this experience? Do you call a UFO researcher or do you call a shaman? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, one of the things that I have discovered is that when you take people into their subconscious, superconscious selves they are experiencing more of their multidimensional reality. And that's when, as a a therapist stroke researcher, I have learned that I also need to be open enough to however that information is articulated. And it may not be in terms of how we understand our dimensional paradigm. People that have um, that I've regressed have gone into other dimensions, for example. They've seen being taken to other uh, planets which they believe are their um, planet of origin, for example. They've seen themselves in different forms. They've gone into spaces we call unity consciousness, where they seem to have the availability of all knowledge to them. They've gone into other lifetimes where they've not been human. So for me, there has to be a far more open mandate in terms of of how I work compared to someone who's working purely from a third dimensional perspective. Because the you know you 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 can either say oh well none of that is real, or you can say okay tell me about what you are seeing or experiencing, and let's keep it open. Let's not look at happened or didn't happen or time or date. And I've written actually an article on that um, where I actually give my, uh, if you like, my open mandate because it, I have discovered that I can't look at it through third dimensional eyes. I have to look at the fact that I don't know what I don't know. And just because it's challenging my paradigm doesn't mean it isn't possible. Um, and that's the other thing too. What is possible and what isn't possible? And that's something else that I've found that I've had to look at. And we all have multidimensional experiences, don't we? We all have synchronicities or things that happen. We get a sense someone's going to phone us and off, uh, and what happens, somebody, that person phones us. We get a sense of something. Um, a lot of people with this, as you know, become very psychic, very intuitive. They can see spirits. They can see orbs floating around after their experiences. They have heightened sensitivity. Um, some, some people find that they feel they can communicate with animals, for example, not only seeing spirits, but communicating with animals, seeing energy fields around people, etc., etc. Now, none of these have been 
fully understood or quantified as yet in a third dimensional paradigm. But in a multidimensional one, there are many people that are now experiencing all these things. So what do you do? Do you say, oh, well, I'm not going to go there because I'm not comfortable or I don't understand it? Or do you say, tell me more about what that's like? Tell me about how it, it, it feels to you so that we start to understand the multidimensional nature of who we are. And I think our subconscious is our multidimensional aspect and it's showing us more of our our reality from that perspective in terms of what the scientists would call the quantum hologram. And so for me, you can't look in this particular experience that you're experiencing and so many others and think that we can interpret it through a third dimensional pair of glasses because it isn't going to work because you're never, ever going to get the understanding. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And this is exactly where I struggle because I am... The, that's exactly why I asked the question about the shaman, because I, I feel like we're tipping, you know, there's these vocabulary words, we're forced to use these words, and, and words like mystical and magic, in a way, are words that I'm perfectly comfortable with in trying to define my own set of experiences. Um, you know, there are hardcore you know, scientists that would cringe at those words, but I feel those words are perfectly valid for my direct experience. And and what I'm fighting in a way, or what I see as a problem, is that um, I just see the entirety, well, that's, I should be careful what I say, I see a, ma- a majority of this research community is framing the totality of this phenomenon as something very simplistic. And from the inside, from my view, not only from my own experiences, which are somewhat fleeting, but more from the people I'm talking with, is that this is is so rich and so multi-layered and so ethereal as trying to pin something down that it, it seems like you know, I'll go right back to it. We're, 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 we're walking, or I feel like I'm being led down the path that feels more like, uh, and shaman is such an easy catchphrase, but I think you know what I'm getting at is that, that you're tapping into these alternate realms and that goes beyond just, you know, like the stories I've heard of people lying frightened on a table and goes much more into the people who come out of these experiences and begin to do energy healing. I mean, you know, they'll do energy healing with their hands, like Reiki therapy and other forms of, of uh, alternate healing. I mean, I hear that so often that when I talk to people, I'll write it down on the piece of paper before we even start the conversation. And when we get to that, you know, usually they'll say, yes, I'm, you know, my life has changed. I am now doing something that should be, by all physical standards of modern science, be impossible. I I, I I kind of went on there for a while, but I think you know what I'm saying, yeah. Yes. Um, this is why I had to alter my approach, simply because so many of those having experiences discover they've got a very rich multidimensional reality that does not fit. And so in, in my article, which I call The Open Mandate, Exploring the Matrix, I take as my mandate something Thomas Kuhn the author of The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and in it he says this, just observe, drop all your preconceived categories as best you can, and just collect raw information. Don't even use words like happened 
or didn't happen, exist or doesn't exist, inside, outside, real or unreal. Just put that all aside and collect raw data. And for me, this is my mandate because it's the only one I can have because what we're doing is we're pioneers, if you like, into the matrix of what reality or what is reality for a start. And so now people say, well, how do you, you know, how, how do you put things together? I say, well, you know, it's a bit like a jigsaw, but what I'm looking for is patterns of experience. So if I get enough people saying, this is part of my experience. I will put that as another indicator that this is relevant to this experience. And if I get enough people saying the same thing, whether they're being taken to a planet which they say is their planet of origin, for example, and they describe similar things, then that will be another pattern. I think it would be very, um, what's the word, um, uh, uninformed of me and very limited of me if I thought that for one minute I could interpret that from a third dimensional perspective because we're not looking at the third dimension here. We're looking at a multi-dimensional experience and we don't even know what that is yet. So the only way scientifically, and I believe this is scientific, that I, I can do that is to say, okay, just tell me how it is for you. How do you experience it? How do you understand it? And when I get enough people saying similar things, I, and the patterns look similar, then I can say, well, this seems to incorporate the multidimensional nature of the encounter. And I don't, you know, I go into knowings and feelings as well because they're just as valid. You know, um, how do, you know, when somebody says to me, I'll say, well, how, you know, how do you know that? And they'll just say, I just know. Now, why is that invalid? Just because somebody says they just know it. You know, that is important to take notice of. A feeling or a for example, it's important because it's part of the pattern. And this is how we judge everything in our reality, don't we? We, we use our knowings and our senses, even though sometimes it's hard to trust them because, you know, logic comes in and says, well, can you quantify that? Maybe not. But then again, our scientists still don't know what reality is. And, and so, you know, science is still exploring the matrix as much as the experiencer is. So for me, I don't dismiss anything because I can't dismiss what I don't know. Oh, that feels so good to hear this now. So I've heard stories. Do you know Kim Carlsberg? Yes. So Kim Carlsberg put out a book uh, in the late 90s called Beyond My Wildest Dreams, actually in the mid-90s. And then yes. within about the last four years or so, she put out a book called... Uh, Art of Close Encounters, which was a collection of illustrations. But uh, when she was coming... Yes, it's, it's brilliant. Yes, the, the, the illust- I have one illustration in that book. Uh, but when she was coming forward again, she had kind of hit her head in the sand and left the scene, and I, she was gone for 16 years. And when she came back, Stephen Bassett, and she's told the story, I'm not telling anything out of sorts here, Stephen Bassett sat her down and said, okay, you're coming forward, you got to stick to the program. You cannot talk about channeling. You cannot talk about the psychic stuff. You cannot talk about, uh, you know, alien hybrid children. You have to stick to this very confined uh, narrative and don't stray from that, you know, because in, in his, it sounded like a, 
you know, someone at a at the advertising agency for a dishwashing liquid saying, you know, we have to stick to these catchphrases to make sure that our dishwashing liquid is the best kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, she did it for a while, and, I, and, it, and it kind of drove her crazy. And then she just kind of, uh, uh, you know, let loose and then talked about all those things that are outside the boundaries of the very simplistic storyline. And, I mean, you... I guess you and I and all of us in this in this pool are in a very difficult place where we can't like the story isn't simple there isn't a a condensed version to give to someone and this just I, I just worry that this sets us up for something so difficult as to try to get our story across because it seems like the world doesn't have the patience to listen to the deeper more complex story well, I agree on one level, but what I also, I'll tell you a little story. I was, um, some years ago, I was giving a presentation to, I think it was either the Rotary or the Probus, a little talk on, on this subject, but I was obviously keeping it fairly tangible. But I remember a gentleman, I, I think they were retired businessmen or something or other, and he came up to me before I gave my presentation and he said, oh, he said, you're the UFO lady, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, right, he says, I'm going to have some fun with you then. And I said, ah, are you? I said, well, do your damnedest, I sort of said, you know, because immediately the challenge went up. And so because of that interaction, I suppose he fired me up a little bit. So I came in to the presentation and saw all these gentlemen, these retired businessmen or whatever sitting there. And before they ever said anything to me, I said, I would like to say to you that I bet that every single person in this room has had an experience they can't explain in third-dimensional terms. And not one hand went up, Mike, because I know that every single one of us has had experiences that we can't explain from a third-dimensional perspective. Everyone has insights. Everybody has intuitions and knowings. They may not listen to them. They may not acknowledge them. But we are all multidimensional. So what I use as my mandate is the fact that, look, we all have had those insights. Some have them in a more expansive way. For example, a dog can hear things that we can't hear. Just because you can't see or experience something the way this other person has, does not mean that it's not real. It just means that your sensitivity to that isn't as heightened as this other person. We only see 1% of the visual spectrum, for example. We know that many animals see way beyond. So does it mean it doesn't exist just because we can't see it? It's a nonsense. And so that's the perspective that I have when people start to explore and, and articulate their intuitive abilities I know they're seeing things. They'll describe, and the cameras will often show the orbs that people are seeing, you know. So we've got to get over this very limited programming that we've all been put into in terms of our education. And even science itself is forever having to alter the way that it understands reality. And certainly in quantum physics, we are now getting to understand the, the way that we are seeing reality is a very limited programming. I agree completely. My sense of reality f- has been 
uh, basically there was a death and rebirth experience where like my old identity and my old ideas about what reality was are gone and then you know it took a while t- to rebuild and replace that with what I feel is a new definition or a new set of definitions um, and open-ended because I, I don't have any answers but um, but yes my life has changed my ideas about this stuff have changed hey um how many folks do you feel that you've worked with in one you know in this realm in the in the uh, UFO abduction lore in this side of things about two and a half thousand now and these are coming from all over the globe not just in australia obviously i get a lot of inquiries from the us and canada uk now europe um even you know places like turkey um china china and japan um also indonesia as well as places in south america so what fascinates me is that there are individuals that a lot of them don't speak English as a first language but have gone to the trouble of seeing presentations that I've done in English and it has resonated with them on some level that they've gone to the trouble of writing to me. So for me, that in itself is saying that the information, and you know that I'm uh, not your nuts and bolts ufologist, Um, I think most people know that, Um, Although I know how important that is to have the tangibility for, you know, that side of things and the factual side. Um, I'm also honoring the fact that people are having many other experiences that are not so easily quantifiable. And that, for me, is, is as valid, even if it isn't as quantifiable as we'd like it to be, just in the way you know, that you're talking about where people are doing incredible things, going into healing, coming out with strange languages, writing strange scripts. And all of this seems to manifest after some profound encounter or UFO experience. Yes. Now, are you seeing any patterns as far as, uh, is there a change in the number of people reaching out not necessarily to you, but to other researchers. Are you seeing a change in the number of people who may be suddenly aware of their own experiences or awakening to their own experiences? Like in the last decade or so? Absolutely. And certainly in the last few years, many people have contacted me. And the word they use, which is interesting because they may certainly not be what we call the new age fraternity or, or even metaphysical fraternity because these can be lawyers, they can be doctors, they can be nurses, social workers, teachers, um, you know, someone, a professor um, or academics, for example. They will say, I had my awakening a couple of years ago where something happened and it's completely changed my world, my focus, what I look at, what is important to me. All these major things in their lives have uh, um, been they've been completely redirected and this seems to have been far more um, obvious in the last two three four years really okay so that exactly matches what I just said about my own direct experience I'm 52 years old right now I had a bunch of life experiences that I managed to deny all of them. I mean, I just like, no way. I'm not going to go there. And I denied him. I put a wall up. I did not deal with him until I was about 47 or 48, you know? So, and then looking into those, you know, the trap door fell out from under me and, 
and I plummeted into this very challenging place where I had to, you know, I had to, I had to recreate myself. And I guess that would be my awakening. Now, what are you finding as a pattern as, as far as what these folks are telling, uh, you know, what changes are they experiencing in their lives? I think depending on how they, how heavily they've been programmed into their third dimensional mindset, for example, I found the ones that struggle the most are those that are, uh, have gone through a lot more of the educational systems, such as higher education, for example. I've met scientists. I mean, one of them has become a good friend who's a geneticist. And they struggle far more when this happens because it, it literally does confront every scientific area or paradigm that they have been educated into. So it's almost like there's a real reluctance to let go of that kind of certitude that they feel they have to actually find themselves where there's, there doesn't seem to be any solidity almost for a while in terms of what is real. Um, and I remember this particular gentleman who started to see craft with his father, with his best friend, woke up at night and saw a huge insect mantid-like being standing there observing him, blue light in the room, um, other little smaller beings, um, then started to see and sense everything around him, like the, the, the sensing everybody's feelings and emotions when he was around them at work, you know, in the laboratories, he would feel everybody's emotion. And it was absolutely crucifying him because he just didn't know whether he was going crazy. What was what on earth was this? Was you know, he he went through the the usual going to see um, doctors and and to try and get some sense of whether or not you know he was losing the plot, as we say, you know, going crazy. Um, and in the end, none of that made any difference. He was still experiencing things even when he tried taking medication. And it wasn't as a, well, it was almost as a last resort. Somebody recommended myself and he came to see me and he said, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go with this. And I said, well, until you're prepared to let go of the old world and start to find and, and create a new reality for yourself, one that incorporates these new experiences, you are going to be in conflict. You are going to be in a place of, uncertainty and instability and you have to get ready to go down the rabbit hole and he went to the u.s for a while and he went to james gilliland's ranch and spent three months there and eventually he sent me an email saying i'm i'm sort of ready to go down the rabbit hole now mary you know um but he still says to me you know mary i'm seeing a blue orb above your head what does that mean what's it doing there look there's other things floating about what are they doing and, you know, so I've, I've actually got him to a point now where at least he's um, honoring what he's experiencing, but now he's got to start being able to access that other part of him so he can start to get answers or at least answers that make sense to him and resonate with him. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, that you're, you're describing me in a way. I, I feel like I was clinging to that old paradigm and, or that old... I guess I'm going to say that old me and that clinging, that that 
you know, I just get the, the sort of mental image of, of uh, you know, the fingernails hanging on the ledge and that ledge crumbling, you know. That was that was a very shaky, uneasy chapter of my life, I have to say. So, so now I have found, and this is, this is a vast generalization, and this is coming from my present research, which is mostly dealing with these owl sightings, is that I am finding that women are finding me and telling their stories much more often than men. And and I'm wondering whether the whether women are, well, let's just say, less indoctrinated into that nuts and bolts, 3D physical tangible reality than men are. Is is that too simplistic on myself to make that generalization? I think women are more open to allowing themselves to sense um, and have and use their intuition more, and that that sense of. I think probably the fact that they many of them become parent, you know, mothers, where you tune into your child, you you become a lot more um, sensitive to your child's needs and what have you. That opens you up more to that side of yourself, that multi-dimensional side of yourself. You know, that 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 nurturing side, and because women are more allowed, if you like, to be more emotional, to be a little less. Um, straight down the line that they're, they're given almost permission by society to you know be interested in in more of the the multi-dimensional intuitive world if you like for men it's a lot harder I'm, I'm not saying that they're not in tune I'm just saying that it's a lot harder for them to own it because in in the male world even to you know showing their emotion for example but what is interesting to me and I think the UFO um, experience or or encounter. I've had what I've had not only workshops, but I've had support groups where it's been predominantly men, and that's fascinating because in these groups, a lot harder. Where? Oh, oh, Mary. Mary. The UFO experience. Oh, Mary, I, we're breaking up a little bit. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start over. I'm going to just, I'm going to hang up and we're going to, I'm going to call yeah. you right back. You were breaking up. It was, it was hard to hear the last 30 seconds or so of that. So I apologize that I have okay. to do this. Um, I'll, I'll call you mm-hmm. back in less than 30 seconds. <laughs> Hi, this is Mike. I'm chiming in during the editing process. Hey, uh, something happened. I lost Mary for maybe, yikes, maybe close to 15 minutes. I could not figure out what was going on. I had to walk over to my neighbor's house where I share the router and monkey around with that and unplug some things and turn stuff back on and off. But uh, eventually we got connected again, persevered. So sort of one conversation ended and you're going to jump right into another conversation. What I did edit out, not because anything was shared that was necessarily that interesting, it's just because I... uh, But what I did ask when I got back online and talked to Mary again... I asked a question, a question that I ask pretty much everyone, is have you had any of your own personal experiences with this stuff? And by this stuff, I mean like the alien abduction stuff. And she laughed, and and, uh, she had a good answer, which is one I've heard before and one I respect. She kind of said, well, if I have, I don't know it. And then, and then we pick up our conversation after this. So here we go. So uh, the big funny gap, we jump back into the conversation. Here we go. And my sense is, as far as my own experience, I have been forced to play detective 
in a way that goes around the block and down the path and way, way out into left field. And then I have to circle back. And I've been forced to make this complicated journey. I, I, for reasons I don't understand, I was not allowed any kind of simple answer that would confirm my own experiences. And I had to come to my own realization through a lot of hard work. Uh, and I, maybe that's true of everyone, and I'm, but but I but I, I simply do not have any kind of uh, you know memories of being on board a craft. Let's say. I, th- I think that for me, it, it suggests that each one of us, as a soul, uh, chooses whatever um, our our human experience is going to be, and the red flags that get us to open up or learn what we need to learn on this planet, and. For some people, it, it's it's they may have the very confronting, fear-based experience. For others, it's completely the opposite. It's a very loving experience where they feel very connected to the beings. One of the things that has interested me in why I've been drawn into this whole phenomena obviously doesn't mean um, anything. Uh, to me, it suggests that on some level, my mandate has been to be involved in this. What John Mack said to me was very, well, not to me, but he articulated when he was ever asked whether he'd had any experiences. He said it's been, uh, you know, for him, very important that he wasn't a conscious experiencer if he was one, and he's not saying that he was. What he was saying was it gives him a lot more credibility in the public eye simply because when they ask him that, he can say, no, I haven't had any experiences, which means that he actually gets a lot more um, acceptance um, from the public because of that very reason, because he's not one of them. Therefore, of course, you know, there's something um, suspect about him. And I think in a way um, uh, for myself, the fact that I have no conscious recall of any experiences like this, but I've been involved in it on some level. Obviously, I, I believe personally I've, I've chosen to be involved. Well, here, but let me second, just let me just interrupt. I, this is being recorded. Are you comfortable with sharing this? Yeah. Okay. I'm, okay. I have okay. No good. Good. With that. Okay. Um, what I I would like to say about that is that what is useful for me because you know I've if I have I've got no recall. Um, what I would say is that that's been very useful for me as a researcher and and a therapist is that. When anyone comes to me, I'm able to meet them with their own experiences with uh, without any kind of personal baggage around it, if you know what I mean, in a way. And that's allowed me, for me personally, I'm not saying that's for everyone, but for me personally, that's been very good from in terms of radio or media because they see me as objective and neutral, which I am, or I believe I am, as much as you can ever be. Um, but secondly, um, it allows me to be, um, if you like, a mirror rather than someone that has certain um, of their own experiences, which sometimes can can make you um, less objective, if you like. <laughs> Does that make sense? Oh, are you kidding? Yes, no. So I am. I, am, <laughs> I have shitloads of baggage. I am not neutral, <laughs> and I am like I am completely as 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 subjective as I can possibly be. So yeah, so I am coming from a from the you know like I feel like I'm wearing a neon hat that that's screaming <laughs> subjective, subjective, subjective. Yes. So 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 this is how I got into this in a way where in 2006. In the fall of 2006, which is now coming up on the eight years now, uh, 
uh, yeah, almost eight years to the day here coming up. I had a bunch of experiences with owls, and I am quite convinced these are not the screen memory owls. These were real owls that arrived and flew around me and another person, and it was irrational. It didn't make any sense. It was mystical. It was magical. It had the feeling of... I should call the shaman that didn't have anything to do with UFOs. But in the moment, in the moment I saw those owls, I knew, I knew, I knew. Like there's a screaming voice in my head that said, this has something to do with the UFOs. And and it was the owls. So, so I started looking into my own experiences shortly after those owl experiences. And that's when, that when I said the trap door fell out from under me. That's what I meant. So I have been... Presently, I have a I have a website and and I uh, don't get that many hits. It's pretty modest, but I do do a lot of articles on owls and and mm-hmm. abduction. People who see owls in conjunction with abduction. So I am getting so many people contacting me with their stories. So I'm you know I feel like I call myself a researcher, but I'm not really doing anything. Right, all I do is check my mm-hmm. email and these stories come in. So uh, and I'm shocked, and it is so weird. The stories that I'm hearing are not stories that sound like the simplistic version. It does not sound like people are interacting with metal spaceships coming from another planet. Mm-hmm. It sounds so much more ethereal and multidimensional and and like our reality is sputting up against and colliding with another reality. It does not sound like a spaceship is flying, you know, into our atmosphere to perform experiments. Now that may be part of it. So, so I guess I'm, I'm kind of take, I'm, I kind of lost myself there a little bit, but I, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that from my own direct experience, I have not had the, memories of let's say being on board a craft but i have had all these other things show up in these profound synchronistic ways that have forced me to to recognize my own involvement in this in this weirdness and i think mike with all of that is what it causes the dilemma for so many people that write to me and say I haven't had this, but I've experienced this, this, and this, and this, which has been multidimensional in nature and whatever. And I'm going to make a, a statement that seems to resonate in terms of my research anyway, is that I believe, quite honestly, we're all targets of this um, awakening, if you want to put it in terms of that term. In other words, humanity itself, um, the consciousness, the collective consciousness of Homo sapiens is being triggered, if you like, um, to wake up to their multidimensional nature. And for everyone, it will be slightly different. For some, it will be the, the standard UFO encounter type experience. For some, it may be through a near-death experience. <clears throat> it may be through... Um, a severe, very um, traumatic grief experience that they are woken up to more uh, um, of who they are or, or, or inspired to seek more understanding or whatever. So for every soul, it's slightly different. But I think that we're all choosing the way that we need 
to have that catalyst, if you like. And I think it's it's a planetary thing, I, you know, although some will have far more of the very obvious phenomena, as we call it, others it will be in different ways. What's, what being exposed to this experience with so many hundreds of people now, it has forced me as a researcher as well as a therapist to, to find the tangibility of this reality. And I have looked in areas I would never have dreamt of looking in normal terms in the way an experiencer does. You know, what's the, the, um, the uh, evidence historically, anthropologically, archaeologically, biologically, um, philosophically, um, spiritually, you know, all these different areas have come into being um, part of my seeking to understand this phenomena and who and what we are, all the same things that an experiencer, once they are um, have experiences out of the box, find themselves doing. And they may find themselves obsessed with quantum physics or with the origin of the species or whatever it is. It starts you on that journey, which is exactly the same thing. So the only difference will be is how our particular soul wishes to explore this or wake up to this, if that makes sense. Yes, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said something to the effect of, oh, you know, I'm going back to college. I want to study advanced physics. And this mm. is like the guy who paints the houses. You know, mm. this is not this is not like someone who's already got a foundation in this or, you know, people who said, you know, like, oh, I just got this. And I've heard this over and over again, you know, oh, I just, you know, I woke up one morning and I had this very powerful pull to study Reiki. And now I'm a Reiki master. Um, so I hear that kind of thing a lot. Hey, uh, in preparing for this talk with you, which we just decided on last night for me, I guess I'm not sure what time it was for you yesterday, but um, I watched online, I watched My Mom Talks to Aliens. And I have to ask about the production of that. Um, I thought it was very good, but I also sense that, uh, like, I can sort of read between the lines a little bit, and I could kind of sense the agenda of the filmmakers there. How was that production? How was that working on that? And I, I have to say, I enjoyed it greatly, but I did sense that there was a, you know, that that you know that they wanted to frame it very cautiously. Look, how it evolved was that my son, who, as you gather, was is a veterinary surgeon and. He actually was on um, an ABC network called um, The Vets. And so the producer of that show was the one that produced My Mum Talks to Aliens. And because he knew my son was used to operating quite comfortably in front of the camera, he also knew that Chris's mum was involved in this because he had also been in a production team where I'd done some work for them. So he knew I could also operate in front of the camera. The idea was, because he was aware, it was more about showing the conflict between belief systems more than anything, the UFO aspect in, in a sense. It could have been about my work with something that was completely, um, if you like, in conflict with um, Christopher's scientific mind, whatever it was, whether I was doing you know, healing or something or other. It happened to be the UFO one as the subject matter. But what the, the whole idea was to explain, to actually show the, the human conflict in families when you have one person having, if you like, a complete paradigm shift to the other one and the issues that 
that go into that. That was the first thing and the primary thing. The, the thing for me in, in, that made it difficult was that I'd just come back from a 10-week overseas tour, so I was absolutely shattered, and the film crew arrived the next day, so I had no time to even prepare for the agenda and the schedule that they'd set up. So in that sense, I was on a bit of a back foot. But I, you know, at the same time, I did realize it was important in a non-threatening way to do something like this. And when the researcher asked me what kind of subjects to cover, um, I said, look, you're the one that doesn't know anything about this. What would be convincing to you as a, as a, a person being first exposed to this material? And so he made the agenda. He picked out some of the most you know, I mean, Peter Curry's case is one of the most extreme. The one thing that I was quite cross about afterwards was the fact that Greg, Greg, when he did the polygraph, it appeared he didn't pass it. In fact, he did pass the conscious recall. The only thing he didn't pass was the the recall of his hypnotic regression. Oh, so let, let, let me interrupt. Is, let me interrupt because so so that was would have been done in the editing process where the editors would have framed it that way because I was watching that too and it was a little unclear. I was watching and I was like, "Oh, wait a minute." Like the, it was just the polygraph person kind of mentioned something like, "Oh, you know, he failed this part." And then you had a sad look of of this gentleman's face and then you were on to something else and I wanted to I wanted to understand that deeper. Yes, please, please. That, this is fascinating. But, well, it was manipulated, in, and I was very upset with Dan Brown about this because I said to him, it looks like he failed it. Well, I spoke to the polygraph guy, Gavin, afterwards, and we discussed the fact that because the, what he had been questioned on was information when he was in an altered state, he is not going to be as certain responding to that as he would do with conscious memory. And he agreed with me, and that was not shown on the footage it was edited out, and I was very upset about that because I said it made it look like he'd actually failed the polygraph when, in fact, he didn't. He actually, in his conscious recall of anything, was absolutely fine. And that was my biggest critique, really. There were a few, a few other things that I wasn't as comfortable with, but the way that I looked at it and the response that I had ultimately was very positive, hundreds of emails, um, it, it has, it's been shown five times on SBS since 2010. It was also being shown on Qantas domestic and international flights. People could access it for a few years. And it's really been um, a very useful one to expose people to a little bit of this phenomena without being too confronting. And what happened with even the debacle with Canberra and Charlie Lineweaver, who I think probably regrets absolutely he ever did this by making a mockery of the whole subject. No, no. So um, let me interrupt. He was one, he was the scientist that was at the symposium <laughs> with you. Is that correct? He. It was a debate at Canberra University. Um, but the the there were two things there. First of all, we were given eight minutes to change a paradigm, which is an, an impossibility. <laughs> Um, and secondly, most of the people in the audience were Charlie Lineweaver students. So talk about setup was probably the least of uh, the main thing. But primarily, um, my concern was that, 
you know, um, I'd expected him to treat it with respect, at least for, you know, the fact that that's what a, what I would say was, is what a professional um, scientist would do. When I did a similar thing at Oxford University, um, I think that was in 2006, when I spoke and it was um, with an astrophysicist, it was again, it was a forum, um, similar thing about the reality of extraterrestrial life. And what happened there, we were given half an hour each. And what you, what uh, Professor Zilstra, who was head of astrophysics at Manchester University, but it was treated with um, the respect it deserved. And interestingly, um, I talked about primarily people's experiences from my perspective, and I actually won the forum. And that was at Oxford University, but it had been treated with respect, and I was given half an hour, not eight minutes. Um, and I also didn't have a biased audience, which that was, because primarily most of the students were Charlie Lineweaver students. No. So, you know, it was heavily weighted, let's put it like this, but the fascinating outcome of that was what it did um, show the public was how even scientists can show their limits and their, um, their bias, even in situations where you would think they would be actually a lot more objective and a lot more respectful. And certainly there was no respect there, in my view, of this. It was, let's, let's make fun of this. This is a joke. Um, and that's what came over. And I had many people very angry with how I'd been treated, which was actually quite... Didn't, definitely worked in my favor. Oh, very interesting. Now, I'll read a question. I, at the beginning of this, I said to you, I have very few questions written down on my piece of paper. I'll read one of them. I watched My Mom Talks to Aliens, and I was so frustrated during the talk at the scientific symposium. I thought the scientist was so flippant and condescending. So, yes, yeah, so that's interesting that it worked in your favor because he, he looked like an ass. He looked like a pompous <laughs> ass. Yes, so I could see that working in your favor. I did not even think about that while watching it. I was just, I was just angry at the at him, and there was some wonderful cutaways to your face where you looked very, very stern. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> I think if you'd actually seen energetically, there was steam coming out of my ears. At <laughs> there that was point. you didn't have to. Yeah, there was. I was furious, <laughs> more furious than you can imagine. But as I say, really, um, what the producer said, as far as he was concerned, I'd won that. Um, even though that wasn't the count that was at the end of the day. And it did, it got me a great deal of empathy from lots of people because they resonated to this whole debunking patronage of, of people who are supposed to be scientists, which means they're open to new information, that are actually not being scientific. And and now I, this is, uh, I actually have this written down here, uh, an anecdote from my own, uh, experience, which I think is funny, and I just would love you to get a. So I um, uh, I I've been doing a little presentation where I do my owl research and and talk about that as well as my own experiences. And there's a few things there. I you know I have some slides and I have some point. And at one point I made the reference. I said you know um, some of this stuff drives people crazy. And I had I had a, someone who I trust and someone who I respect, you know, got a hold of me and he said, listen, your research, you are not being scientific. And my response was like what do I care? I'm not a scientist. And that got a big laugh from the audience when I said that. And I, and it was, and I mean it, I am not a scientist. I do not feel any obligation to follow the scientific method. I see myself much more as a, 
as almost like a folklorist where I'm collecting these stories and these stories have such a power and such a richness to them and I feel that these personal experiences that people have had can stand on their own and and I almost see these stories as uh, you know, it doesn't do any good to sort of speculate what they may and may not mean. The stories themselves have such a profound power. My, my, my story as well as other people's stories. One of the things that has come to to become very clear to me with working pe- with people with their subconscious in, um, recall, where they have gone not only to other planets, to other dimensions, they've gone into past lives, in between lives, all of those things we can't quantify yet in terms of a third dimensional understanding. However, the mere fact that individuals who do not necessarily believe in past lives experience them, for example, who do not necessarily believe in dimensions will experience them, for example. So the subconscious is offering us a rich tapestry of information, however you want to interpret it, and who has the right to actually say what is actually um, real or not real from that perspective. Nobody has. There is a discrimination against personal reality on this planet that is absolutely uh, comes with an arrogance that you can have some people that say, well, that is real and that's not real, who has the right to say that to you? Because you are the master of your own experience and how you see reality, for example. You're the one that understands yourself better than anybody else. Yes, there are times when we, we do lose that sense of balance um, in terms of what we're experiencing and we need help for that. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of millions of people that are saying similar things, like, you know, going up onto crafts, seeing beings, etc., etc. And, you know, these experiences change them in profound ways. Surely the mere fact that it's changing you, a hallucination doesn't change your life forever. A, a profound experience will. The evidence of a reality is how that affects your life from then on. And there is the evidence that these experiences change us in profound ways. What more do you need other than that? Yes, I agree completely. And I feel that, I. And so from my direct research, I am putting these owl experiences in that same category as a profound life experience. Obviously, it, it's weighted differently as far as the intensity, but I have talked to people who have had owl experiences, myself included, that have changed their life. Simply walking down a path in the forest, seeing an owl has changed their life. And I find that very interesting. I mean, so this is, you, you know, are you, are you, this is where you bring in the shaman. Are you talking about a totem animal that an Aboriginal would see and have a, have a lineage of mythology from their own culture? We in the West have lost all that lineage of mythology, but we still have the experience, this profound experience with the owl. And I'm convinced that's why the owl is being chosen as the screen memory at times because it is playing that symbolic or archetypal role in the subconscious of the observer, uh, and and I'm I'm 
finding that I'm, I have a feel like I have a wealth. I feel like I have too much information now. Like I've been flooded with data that confirms that that idea. I may not be right or you know are wrong here. It's a it's a fun line of speculation. But yes, that people's lives are changed in profound ways, and it is often associated with not just the UFO contact experience, but the outlying experiences, the powerful the powerful uh, psychic visions even have, have had, uh, you know, uh, have changed people's lives. I will include myself in that. So once these people have had this change, uh, how do they proceed forward? What is their role in society? Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge their experiences and, you know, learn to accept them as part of their life experience. So they integrate those within their uh, understanding of their life experience rather than be in conflict or denial of them. There comes a point where you either say, well, this is my reality or it isn't. If you can accept it as part of your reality um, so that you are operating, you know, also in a third dimensional world, but a multidimensional one, if you can integrate that in harmony and in balance, then you can operate on all those levels, actually, okay. It's only when you're in conflict with part of it that you feel destabilized. I mean, let's face it, we all have different roles, for example. You know, part of us is, you know, the mother or the wife or the gardener or the cook or whatever. We're operating in all those different roles. It's no different with our third dimensional world and our multi dimensional world, except for we have to remain as grounded as we can be, of course, as well because I think we're meant to work in harmony with that. I almost liken it to, you know, the right and left brain. The left brain is our, uh, is our third-dimensional world, and our right brain is our multidimensional world. They're meant to work in harmony, not one more predominant than the other. So you create a new balance for yourself, a new, um, if you like, a ground. And I, I sometimes laugh a little bit, and I liken my reality to an ice flow that I'm standing on, which I've, you know, I've got a sort of understanding of in terms of my reality at this point. But my, as I get more information, the ice flow melts and I have to jo- jump to another one and recreate it um, with the new information. It actually becomes a bit of an adventure when we, have, we don't have to have it all set in concrete, that we can be um, flowing with our experiences and flowing with how it unfolds and flowing with, you know, um, being human. So that's sort of, so it's, it's a bit like, you know, being happy um, on your um, snowboard going down the hill um, and knowing that and trusting your snowboard is going to get you there at the end and you're not going to fall over. That's about as close as I can get. This is very strong, powerful, positive advice and uh this is interesting coming from someone who has worked with so many people to have uh you know to say that as a as a you know your look at the big picture of all of this because i feel like sometimes i'm looking at my own experiences and i get so myopic and so trapped in the minutia of my own stuff of my own baggage let me just put it that way and it is it's it's really helpful to um to hear you say exactly that as I try to proceed further down this path? I think for me, 
because I'm looking at it from a therapeutic point of view rather than as someone that has to feel like they must quantify everything in some way or other that fits into the old paradigm, that gives me the freedom to assist someone on their journey however they choose to interpret it and however it is the most helpful for them to interpret it. Because in the end of the day, you're the only person experiencing your reality and it's up to you to decide how you choose to interpret it. And actually, you know, no one else has actually the right to tell you how you should do it. Um, it's, it's really, um, it, it's, it's your journey, isn't it? And if you choose to see it a certain way, so be it. That's, that's all okay. My, my, my um, advice to anyone is, you know, to trust that resonance, to trust that knowing, to trust that part of you that, um, that seems to have that, that, um, that sense of how it needs to fit and to stop being, uh, if you like, orchestrated or challenged by other people's responses to that because in the end they can judge how they like. But if they've not had your experience, how can they possibly tell you, you know, what's okay and what's not okay? It's almost like me assuming to know what someone who's had maybe, I don't know, um, an abuse, uh, I don't know, who's got post-traumatic stress disorder and presuming to say, oh, well, you know, if you've got this, this and this, this is what you do. If I've never experienced that in that way, you know, it, it's a nonsense. It's an absolute nonsense. It's like as a midwife, I remember being a student midwife and then having a baby and the difference in understanding about labor and having a baby after I'd had one was completely different to the student midwife who hadn't got a clue, to be honest, of what it was like. And we always used to say the best midwife was the one that had had the baby because you actually knew what it was like then. And so my point is if somebody else is trying to tell you what's what's what your experience is when they haven't had that experience it's a nonsense so trust yourself and learn to trust yourself because the one that's the expert on your experience is you and then at the same time these experiences are so fleeting seems like so much feels hidden uh the name of my website is hidden experience i i named it i have to say in kind of a flurry I, I made it up right in the moment you know there's a little box that shows up you know when you create a website it mm -hmm. says you know name your website and I was like oh god I gotta fill this in and I just tapped that in it accepted it so very very interesting that the that the name I gave the website matches so strongly what I have been struggling with you know sort mm -hmm. of this there's a hidden experience that is that I feel like I can only sense the shadowy outlines of it though I feel certain there is more depth to it there than I can actually know. And as we spoke about earlier, you know, like I feel like I feel like there's someone, some force, some sense that is smarter than me that has chosen to mm, keep that hidden. And it may be my higher self. It may be some part of me, some part of my unconscious or some part of my overconscious. I don't know. You know, this we're getting into murky waters here that has chosen to keep that hidden. But it is hidden. And all I can do is proceed forward with those puzzle pieces missing as best I can. 
I do think that um, I call it the soul self, whether you, um, if you want to call it the higher self, super conscious, whatever, I think is it orchestrating the ride and it gives you the clues and the information as and when you're ready for it. So even though I know some people say, what, when I do these symbols, why don't I know what they mean yet or whatever? And when I did a regression with one lady about the symbols because she wanted to understand why she'd been doing them for so many years, and she was told that they were time-locked. In other words, the time wasn't right yet for her to understand them. And I just say, look, the soul knows where it's going and it's guiding you um, on your journey. And the more you let go and just allow that to unfold, the more chance you have of finding out ultimately where it takes you. Because, it, you know, um, there is a part of us, the wise part of us, that knows what we're ready for and what we're not ready for. At least that's how I, I sense it, it works. Um, and that's what seems to resonate with me up to now. And my sense is that like being on a boat on a river, it is much easier to simply flow along with the current mm. than it is to fight the current. All that said, there's you know hazards and things you have to be careful. Mm. And sometimes you get out of the, need to get out of the river and carry your canoe around you know the waterfall. And this is where it comes for me, synchronicity plays into this, where synchronicity has been my... Uh, my compass bearing in a way uh, as far as how I proceed. Like, if, I'll give you an example. For instance, this morning, I had a phone call. A woman called me up. Uh, she had had an owl and UFO experience two nights ago. She was shaken up. She was very eager to talk about it. She hadn't really talked to anyone else about it. She hadn't done any research into her own experiences. She'd had a lot of UFO sightings of her life. So while I was on the phone with her, my email was going ping, 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 and people were sending me their owl stories. I was on the phone with her for about an hour, and during that hour, I think I got four uh, emails, some more responses to things that I had sent out earlier, and you know, but there was like a heightened resonance where I was listening, and that and that came through, uh, and I trust that that experience is every bit as powerful to me as the nuts and bolts researcher going out and measuring the burn mark in the farmer's field with a tape measure. I found I got just as much deep insight from the synchronistic cloud of people contacting me as any other form of, of information. And that's exactly what happens many times with myself. When I was writing the book Awakening, I'd be on a chapter, say, regarding implants, for example, and it seems that that particular time I was writing on implants, every phone call was about implants. It was um, quite interesting how I was always supported on some level, some metaphysical level with the information that I was trying to put together or whatever. It was like I was being supported um, merely by perhaps the intent, the focus on that particular bit of information would pull it to me from some level or other. And I absolutely believe we are uh, given those kinds of, uh, whether you call it coincidence, synchronicity, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Um, ultimately, it seems like the universe supports our journey and supports our seeking for um, to understand. That's a beautiful place to end this. The only thing I can say is to when those things happen... Uh, and this has come from my direct experience, and I encourage folks, when those things happen, when you get that cloud of of confirmation, is to trust that, that you are on mm -hmm. the path, and let that be the signpost on the path that, you know, when you have to make that decision, whether you go right or left with how you lead your life, you know, those are the clues that will help you make those decisions. Absolutely. 
Hey, thanks so yeah. Hey, thanks so much. I, this was has been wonderful. Sorry about the that we got a little bit of technical mm-hmm. difficulties in the middle there, but um, I've been waiting a long time to do this, and I foresee a day when I will get a hold of you again, and I would love to follow up on this. A pleasure, Mike, and I'm so glad that we were able to do it this morning. Great. And this it's this evening for me as we talked. The sun was setting here, and I had a beautiful sunset out my window the whole time we talked. And uh, yes, I look forward to talking with you again and, and, and hopefully seeing you someday in the future. That would be lovely, Mike. Okay, Hope bye so now. Too. Bye-bye. You still there? Yes. Oh, that was great. That was just great. I um uh after watching the uh the documentary last night, that was I was all wrapped up in those tensions between the the nuts and bolts folks and the and the folks that are digging into something much more much more complex. So I think the the great thing with that was showing how it is very difficult, I think, when you are being programmed into what they call higher education, how actually your programs from that make it even harder for you sometimes to be flexible because of that extra programming in universities or colleges or whatever because it just compounds this is the reality this is the way the world works and so it actually makes those that have gone through that system makes it even harder for them then when they do have things out of the box to deal with them and that's what I've certainly discovered with those that I've come across with you know, higher education and particularly if they've gone through a lot of that, it it does make it much more difficult for them to open up to the fact that reality may not be as they believe it to be. When John Mack was uh, dealing with his uh, stuff at Harvard where, you know, he was going through, he even used the term Kafka-esque where there was an inquiry looking into his, you know, his research, Um, he came up with the term ontological totalitarianism where the you know he was kind of like well who are these guys to like define reality you know like all of a sudden i had said you know like something is going on and then these guys this sort of secret group of harvard higher ups you know said you you have crossed some line and at the same time you know he could walk out of his psychology department walk down some hall and go to another wing of the theology department and all of those same concepts and ideas could be debated in a completely open way I, th- I think that's the 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 whole. Um, to me, it, it's actually quite incredible, isn't it? That you can you know still go into a theological um, arena and talk about all these concepts quite openly. I think the the joke that I remember, and I know um, they told me at the time it was true, where this gentleman took a picture of a UFO um, near a church spire. And the gentleman had the picture but wanted to work out how far the UFO was and the size of it. So he went into the church and said to the, I don't know whether it was a priest or a minister, and said, look, um, can you tell me how tall the church spire is? Because I want to work out. And he showed him the photograph of the UFO. He said, I want to see how big the UFO is in comparison. And the priest laughed and said, you don't believe in UFOs, do you? And the guy said, well, at least I've got a picture. You believe in God, but at least I've got a picture of mine. <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that is exactly that. I mean, the whole thing with religion is about believing which something, which is really quite bizarre, really. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, a God with a, um, a beard um, behind some golden gates and, you know, some angels with harps. I mean, who believes that stuff? Well, a lot of the, the global population does. 
it's it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's the difference. I mean, walking on water and virgin birth is is considered you know respectable, and and at the same time, I had to say you know belief is easy, and you, know, you can believe in anything. That's the sense of knowing that's hard, mm-hmm. and that's where I go. I mean, I will say I will I will dance around the subject is, and I will say, like, you know, I sense that it could be playing out this way, or perhaps we could mm-hmm. speculate down these avenues, and then I'll talk about you know. And and the only thing I can say with absolute assurity that something is going on, something very profound is taking place. Beyond that, it is all speculation to me. And I think that's the bottom line um, for all of those that are contacting me. They sense that some there's a major shift going on. And, and, and also, I sense it too. I sense it too. I yeah. don't know what to make of that feeling, but I got that feeling yeah. in my gut and I don't know how much weight to give it. Well, the weight that I give anything that I, if I get enough people saying the same thing, then I have to take notice of it. And one of the things is that this awareness of a shift and also the sense of what they call an event. Um, And that seems to be coming up not only from adults, but from children as well, that there is something on that level going on. And the children have been particularly significant for me because they don't watch talk shows and they don't read books on this. And yet they're coming out with this kind of information. So whatever that is, certainly I am seeing more and more people opening up to this and opening up to the fact that we're not alone on so many levels. And it's it's gathering momentum. So, you know, I suppose it's about watching that space, isn't it now, Mike? And I think it's it's about listening very carefully to all the clues um, and then weighing them, you know, at a deeply personal level, because I, I feel like there's misinformation that comes out, and, and certain times stories are told in metaphoric ways. You know, it, it would be—I mean, there's plenty of stories of the, the UFO cult leader who, who I feel very strongly is being honest when he says, you know, I got a message that the UFOs are going to land mm-hmm. in this field on this certain day, and everyone mm-hmm. goes to that field, and nothing happens. So that mm-hmm. is as much a part of the lore as anything else. So mm-hmm. I'm cautious but at the same time i listen very carefully yeah yeah well i think we're in the same the same uh on the same page with that and i think it is about watching this space because something definitely is happening and it's happening in a way that seems to be accelerating i i just as you were saying that i was finishing your sentence for for you in my own <laughs> head i said it's accelerating hey just i'll, I'll let you go this has been wonderful mm. and um and have a wonderful day And you have a good evening, Mike. Lovely to speak with you. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. This is Mike. I am chiming in at the end of the editing process. You know, I did something that I love to do, and I got to figure out a way to do it more often. Uh, You'll hear it right at the very end there, at the end of the formal interview. We say our formal goodbyes. And then I go, ooh, ooh, are you still there? And she goes, yeah, I'm still here. And then we talked for another five minutes or so, ten minutes. And I, f- you could feel a difference in the quality. The formal part of the interview had ended, and it sounded a little more conversational, and, 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 which is what I like. To find out more about Mary, look in the show notes. I have linked two separate interviews, part one and part two, that were done for Skeptico and the host Alex, uh, really, really digs into the consciousness aspect of the things. And Alex and, and Mary had a great rapport. They had a great energy together. So those two interviews come highly recommended as a follow-up to this interview. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>